Chapter 3 of No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Conover. No Quarter by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter 3 Beautiful Forest Birds. In all England's territory, there is no district more interesting than the Forest of Dean. Historically, it figures in our earliest annals as borderland and bulwark of the ancient Ciliars, who, with Caractacus at their head, held the country around, defending it on many a hard-fought field against the legionnaires of Ostoria Scapula. Centuries after, it again became the scene of sanguinary strife between the descendants of these same Ciliars, then better known as Britons, and the Saxon invaders, and still farther down the stream of time, another invasion wasted it, Norman and Saxon, arrayed on the same side against Welsh, still the same warlike stock, the sons of Siluria. This conflict against odds commencing with the Norman William and continued, or renewed, down through the days, made illustrious by the gallant Llewellyn, only came to an end with those of the equally gallant Glendower, when the fires of Welsh independence, now and then blazing up intermittently, were finally and forever trodden out. Many a grand historic name is associated with this same Forest of Dean. Famed warriors and famous or infamous kings. The Conqueror himself was hunting in it when the news reached him of the rising in Northumberland, and he swore, by the splendor of God, he would lay that land waste by fire and sword. A cruel oath as cruelly kept. In its dark recesses the wretched Edward II endeavored to conceal himself, but in vain. Dragged thence to imprisonment in the dungeons of Berkeley Castle, there to die, and within its boundaries was born that monarch of most romantic fame, Harry of Monmouth, hero of Agincourt. And the day was approaching, had in fact come, when other names that brightened the page of England's history were to fling their halo of illumination over the Forest of Dean, those of the chivalrous Waller, the brave but modest Massey, Essex, Fairfax, and greatest, most glorious of all, that of Cromwell himself. It was to be darkened, too, as by the shadow of death, ay, death itself, through many a raid of marauding cavaliers with the ruffian Rupert at their head. Dropping history and returning to its interest otherwise, the Forest of Dean claims attention from peculiarities of many kinds. Geologically regarded, it is an outlier of the Carboniferous system of South Wales, from which it is separated by a breadth of the Devonian that has been denuded between, so widely separated as to have similitude to an island in the far-off ocean. An elevated island, too, rising above the Old Red, 
through successive strata of shales, mountain limestone, and millstone grit to nearly a thousand feet higher than the general level of the surrounding terrain. Towards this, on every side and all round for miles and tens of miles, it presents a facade not actually precipitous, but so steep and difficult of ascent as to make horses breathe hard climbing it, while in loaded carts or wagon, teams have to be doubled. Just such a pitch was this on whose top the bitter war of words between Eustace Trevor and Sir Richard Whelan had come to blows. But, though thus high in air, the Forest of Dean does not possess the usual characteristics of what are termed plateau or elevated tablelands. As a rule, these show a level surface, or with but gentle undulations while that of the forest is everywhere intersected by deep valleys and ravines. A very interesting geological fact is offered in the surface formation of this singular tract of country, its interior area being in most places much lower than the rim around it. The peculiarity is due to the hard carboniferous limestone which forms its periphery, having better resisted denundation than the softer matrix of the coal measures embraced by it. The disintegrating rains and the streams often torrents, their resulting sequence, have here and there cut channels of escape outward, some running west into the Y, some eastward to espouse the Severn. Very different is the Forest of Dean now from what it was in those days of which these tales treats, territorially more restricted, both in its boundaries and the area once bearing its name. Then it extended over the whole triangular shape between the two great rivers, from the towns of Ross and Gloucester down to their union in the wide sea, like estuary of the Severn. Changed, too, in the character of its scenery. Now, here and there, a tall chimney may be seen soaring up out of its greenery of trees and vomiting forth volumes of murky smoke in striking disagreeable contrast with their verdure. Then there was nothing of its kind, at least nothing to jar upon the mind, or mar the harmony of nature. Then, too, it was a real forest of grand old trees, with a thick tangle of underwood, luxuriant and shady. For the court favorite, Sir John Wintour, had not yet wasted it with his five hundred woodcutters, all chopping and hacking away at the same time. It was only after the restoration he did that, the robber's monopoly granted him by the martyr king, having been re-bestowed by the merry monarch. There were towns in the forest then, notwithstanding, some of them busy centers as now, but the majority peaceful villages or hamlets, country houses, too, some of prudentious style, mansions, and castles. A few of these yet exist, if in ruins, others known only by record, and still others totally gone out of history, lost even to legend. The forest roads were then but bridle-paths, or trackways for the pack-horse, no fencing on either side, the narrow list of trodden ground running centrally between wide borderings 
of grass-grown sward, so that the traveller, if a horseman, had the choice of soft turf for the hooves of his roadster. Only on the main routes between the larger towns and those going outward was there much traffic. The by-roads had all the character of green lanes, narrow, but now and then debouching into glades and openings of larger area, where the small forest sheep, progeny of the Welsh mountaineers, browsed upon pasture, spare, and close-cropped, in the companionship of donkeys and perchance a deer, or it might be a dozen, moving among them in amiable association. The sheep and the donkeys are there still, but the deer, alas, are gone. Many birds that built their nests in the forest trees, or soared above, are there no more. The eagle makes not now its eyrie in the Coldwell rocks, or soars over Simon's yet. Even the osprey is but rarely seen pursuing its finey prey in the lower waters of either Wye or Severn. Still the falcon a day are to this day represented in the forest district by numerous species, by the kite and kestrel, the buzzard, common, rough-legged, and honey, by the goshawk and sparrow-hawk, the hobby and harriers, and if last not least, in estimation, the graceful, diminutive merlin. Birds of bright feathers, too, still flit through the forest's trees, the noisy jay, the gaudy green woodpecker, and the two spotted species with the kingfisher of cerulean blue, while its glades are gladdened by the sweet song of the thrush, the bolder lay of the blackbird, in springtime the matchless melody of the nightingale, the joyous twittering of linnets and finches mingling with the softer notes of the cushat and turtle-dove. On that calm summer evening, when the clinking of swords on Mitcheldean Hill frightened the forest birds, for a time stilling their voices on another hill, some three miles distance from the scene of strife, the sweet songsters were being disturbed by intrusions upon their wildwood domain, not so much disturbed, however, nor could the disturbers be justly characterized as intruders. Even the birds themselves might have been glad to see, and welcome among them, things of brightness and beauty far beyond their own. Women they were, or rather girls, both being underage, for there were but two of them, sisters, moreover, though there was scarce a trace of resemblance to betray the relationship, either in feature or complexion. She who seemed the elder was dark as a gypsy, the other a clear blonde, with hair showering over her shoulders, of hue as the beams of the sinking sun that shimmered upon it. For all, both were alike beautiful, in a different way, but unquestionably beautiful, and that they were sisters could be learnt by listening to their conversation, their names also as they addressed one another, that of the older, Sabrina, the younger, Vega. They could not be other than the pair of pretty birds spoken of by Sir Richard Walwyn, and verily he had not overrated them. End of chapter 3